hot air and no fire. Call us the Pokemon. <laughs> Now, because of videos, now it's not unusual to see a black group become successful and crossover. At that time, it was literally impossible because he was following the temps and all those people who had a certain kind of structure. But he was bringing another trip to it. He was bringing a combination of like, he was bringing the hipness that maybe Miles with the commerciality of a sly and the consciousness of a universal consciousness all in one band. And you guys, take some more lessons. Well, when are those Earth, Wind, and Fire tickets coming in? Earth, Wind, and Fire? Geez, uh, I haven't heard anything, but the, the minute I do, I'll let you know. So, you know, I'm planning on taking my little brother over here. Is that your little brother? <laughs> He's a good-looking kid. Uh, great. Charles Jefferson for Earth, Wind, and Fire and a little brother. And I'll let you know when they come around, okay? Wow, does he really live here? I thought he just flew in for games. Shit, he knows where to come when he wants some tickets. Welcome right. to episode 15, Earth, Wind, and Fire, if you haven't guessed. By the way, that last clip was obviously Easy Lover uh, by Philip Bailey and Phil Collins, but that, that was them karaoke singing to their own song. Oh, in wow. The, in the yeah, I wondered, like, what the hell is that? That doesn't sound like the original version, uh, but yeah. Yeah. If you watch the video, the official video, it shows them kind of doing like a little karaoke uh, version to their to their own uh, song there, so I thought that was kind of funny. So anyway, well, welcome to the episode Earth, Wind, and Fire, episode fifteen. Um, if you are new to the Cultural Futures Exchange, that's the name of this podcast. This is where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, music in this case, but also movies, TV, anything we think of that's kind of cool. Uh, dive into the context and the time that they came out, what's happened since our take on the future valuation of the item in terms of if you should go long, buy it, the value will go up, obviously. Go short, the value will decrease or, or stay neutral. So that's sort of what we do here. And right. today, we are very excited to present our take on Earth, Wind, and Fire. So Slip, why don't you uh, kick us off here? Yeah, yeah, I'll kick us off. I think, uh, you know, it's funny, the more we do this podcast, the more it's like shit you liked when you were 10 years old or mm -hmm. you know, 12 years old that that you're just trying to see if it still holds up to you. You know, it's kind of like there's such a nostalgia element here. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff, obviously, we've done, you know, uh, 
you know, is not that as old as this for me, but this is like really early for me. You know, um, I was, I was probably, you know, probably six years old when I first started liking this band. Um, you know, I, my parents listened to a radio station called KNX FM in LA, which was basically a soft rock station. You'd hear things like, um, one song, I, one song I'd always remember hearing on the station was like Gary Wright, right? Dreamweaver and his other hit, Your Love is Alive. You know, I associate that. Um, and some R&B songs, like another song I remember hearing around this time and I still love is Where is the Love, which is a duet by um, Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway, you know? And yep. Earth, Wind and Fire fits right in that pocket. And the first song I remember hearing, and it's probably still my all-time favorite Earth, Wind and Fire song, although that as we'll talk about that changes, you know, they have so many great songs uh, is that's the way of the world. And I was absolutely obsessed with this. Whenever I heard it on the radio, I just loved it. Yeah. And I still love it to this day. And part of the reason, you know, not just the radio station, but part of the reason why earth, wind and fire is such a part of my childhood is my parents, unlike a lot of parents of my generation were pretty cool musically. So another reason why, not just the not just that radio station, but another reason why I was really interested in things like Earth, Wind, and Fire is my parents were kind of cooler than a lot of other parents that were the same. Uh, my fr for instance, my friends' parents that were of the same age as my parents. You know, my friends' parents had these record collections, and it was like the Carpenters and you know, yeah, like stuff mine. like that, yeah. right? Same thing for you, right? Yep. Um, and but my parents listened to a lot of, uh, you know, my dad was into Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and I wouldn't get into that stuff right away. Uh, at the time, I they were also into a lot of R and B, and they would go disco dancing together and stuff like that. They had a record collection that was full of things like Stevie Wonder, Sly and the Family Stone, Teddy Pendergrass. Awesome. Uh, and of course, um, they had Spirit by Earth, Wind & Fire. And I remember seeing Spirit and kind of going, whoa, this is kind of an interesting album cover, you know, with the pyramids and the band standing all in a kind of array, like this organized array. And I remember being struck by how many members there were, right? Yep. Uh, and I remember... Of course, after listening to That's the Way of the World, I remember hearing some of the other hits like Get Away from Spirit. You know, I didn't really listen to their records yet. I just kind of looked at them. You know, it was kind of something I wouldn't touch at that young of an age. Uh, but one of the first records I got was Greatest Hits Volume One. And this, of course, included September, which was huge on the radio at the time. And a lot of their other hits, Sing a Song and Can't Hide Love, et cetera. And I wore that thing out. You know, I really listened to it. And then the next year when I Am came out, you know, with Boogie Wonderland and After the Love is Gone, I listened to that as well. And I owned that record at the time as well. Um, and of course, I remember hearing Got to Get You Into My Life uh, by Earth, Wind & Fire. And to me, that's still the definitive version of that song. I'm going to talk more about that song and that cover of the Beatles uh, classic song, Paul McCartney song from Revolver. Uh, you know, quite a bit in my evaluation. But I remember distinctly hearing that. And when I heard the Beatles song later in high school, I was kind of disappointed by the Beatles version because <laughs> I was just so into the Earth, Wind & Fire version That's at the time. Yeah. So, um, and you know, but as I grew older, my taste started to drift more towards classic rock, towards Led Zeppelin. I kind of put Earth, Wind & Fire in the background. I remember Let's Groove Tonight was a massive hit in 1981. I remember liking that, right? But I never really cared about them that much. Then when I was in high school, 
my dad, you know, he started getting some, he, he started beefing up his stereo again. You know, your parents, like kind of had a lot of parents had these cheap uh, stereos and stuff. My dad always had a really good system. He started getting into music again in the eighties when he got a CD player. Right. And so we would get all these CDs and stuff, but then we'd go to garage sales. Cause I was always looking for records. You know, I would always want to get vinyl records at garage sales. Cause I would be able to get these classic rock records I was looking for. And I remember my dad bought a big, he bought like a whole record collection from a garage sale and it included gratitude by earth, one and fire, the live album. Nice. And um, you know, I was still and. I was getting into some African-American, you know, early 70s music, but it was more of the, you know, of course, Jimi Hendrix was huge for me, but I was more into the kind of, quote unquote, serious, you know, uh, uh, kind of political bands like Sigh and the Family Stone. You know, I loved What's Going On by Marvin Gaye and Songs in the Key of Life and Intervisions by Stevie Wonder, you know, and these were some of my dad's favorites as well. Um, but I didn't I didn't really get into Earth. I didn't really pay attention to Earth, Wind and Fire that much. But when I got into college, I got into Parliament and Funkadelic a lot. You know, I, I got the greatest hits by Parliament. And so I got much more into funk. And so I put Gratitude on and I was literally just knocked out of my chair, you know, by this record. It showed another side of Earth, Wind & Fire. Because to me, Earth, Wind & Fire was always about pop music. It was always about the singles. And I never thought too much about the albums, you know, after have, listening to those albums as a kid. You know, I mostly would just put the needle on the hits. You know, when I listened to I Am which is actually pretty solid record all the way through, uh, full of catchy songs, I would mostly listen to the hits. You know, I would listen to Boogie Wonderland or or um, After the Love is Gone. I didn't really pay attention to the other songs. But Gratitude's a whole different thing because Gratitude, as I'll talk more about in my evaluation, kind of shows more of the kind of jazz side of Earth, Wind & Fire. There's these extended jams and you can hear the musicianship. They even have this whole... Uh, long track which is a version of Dvorak's New World Symphony but done as a funk song and it is out of it's just out of control it's amazing and so I got really really into that record and to this day it's still my favorite Earth Wind and Fire record and one of my favorite live albums of all time and of course the, it's a three sides live album the last song has you know it has some great kind of uh deep cuts like Sunshine and Celebrate that are very jazzy influenced pop but of course the big hits Can't Hide Love and Sing a Song are also on there uh, so I got really into that and uh, but I hadn't really thought about them that much. You know, when I uh, met my wife and, you know, we sort of got married and merged our records collections together. She also had Earth, Wind & Fire. She had All in All, which is the album that feature, features Serpentine Fire and uh, Fantasy, most most famously. And I really love that record a lot. And I've listened to it a lot since then. But I kind of forgot about them, you know, for a while. And then when I you know, started collecting records again and really getting into vinyl in recent years, you know, I would just pick up these early Earth, Wind & Fire records. I got their debut album, which is actually a pretty good album, even though it's kind of different. And we'll talk about how their sound changed over the years and how they evolved. I got that record and I really liked that record. And then I got their third record, Last Days in Time. And of course, I've gone on Spotify and, you know, listened to all the records. And we'll talk more about, you know, the, each individual of those records in, in the evaluations. But that's kind of where... Um, we left off, but I also want to just have a quick word. Unlike our other shows where, you know, with music, uh, we've tended with TV shows, we tended to concentrate on the whole series, right? The whole show with music, we've tended to concentrate on albums, individual albums. That's and right. I think with Earth, Wind & Fire, we've decided to take on the whole thing, the whole discography. And I think 
The reason for that is you can't really capture everything they're about with any individual record. You know, you miss something, right? If you if you talk about gratitude, you're missing all those later hits like September, which we'll talk about, which is one of the most popular songs of all time when you really look at the numbers. And you miss the got to get you into my life. You miss, you know, their 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 evolution into disco and how they did that differently than other artists. So I think that's one of the reasons why we're doing the whole discography with Earth, Wind and Fire rather than just concentrating on a single album. And we'll talk more about that in the evaluations, I think. But that's kind of my background with Earth, Wind and Fire. So why don't I hand it off to you to go into yours? Yeah, I mean, my my parents' record collection was certainly uncool to the max. I, I mean, I think my mom listened to Johnny Mathis and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, Carpenters definitely, but I was even, I don't even think they had Carpenter albums. It was mostly on the AM radio. Um, and my my dad didn't listen to music, at least not at home. He didn't have any records. But my mom had like Johnny Mathis and the soundtrack to Ice Castles and that kind of crap, right? So Shit. Yeah. What the so, fuck is, what's on the soundtrack to Ice Castles? Oh, is that like ballads? Like, yeah, yeah. Like this crappy, this, this crap Melissa Manchester crap, you know, that, yeah. that sort of stuff. So um, all of which I kind of like some of that stuff now. I mean, I like the Carpenters, but oh, I, but I, yeah, no, the Carpenters are it's... the best of that lot. I love yeah. the Carpenters. I'm taught they weren't even cool enough to have the Carpenters. As well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? There might have been an Elvis right. al- album in there that might have been kind of cool, but right. it's probably like the you know the the uh, Blue Hawaii soundtrack or something that was pretty questionable, you know, at, at that point. So I definitely was not hearing any Earth, Wind, and Fire uh, in my house. My first recollection of seeing them was actually on TV. And, and I think it was September. It could have been another one of the songs of that late 70s era. But it was like mid, late 70s era. But I just recall um, being captivated by them. You know, like they, they were just, uh, they were wearing sort of the very colorful African-inspired garb at that point. Um, there was just like a crazy number of people on the stage. And it was just very compelling. And I don't know if the music necessarily resonated with me but just the live show i was just like wow who who are these people you know this, this was amazing um and i i was just like well i've never seen this band i don't know if i was even like really thinking about bands or you know how, how that would work at that time it was probably pretty early on but i was compelled by what it is that um these folks were doing um i don't really think i even understood them as a band or that they were a band or or they had a whole catalog and they're famous and all that until I actually started hearing them in the early 80s, probably after their prime, I would say, um, probably according to most people. And I heard them in places like at the beginning clips played, like in Caddyshack, um, the scene where, where Al is, uh, you know, stirring up the, the state country club uh, party there by having the band play uh, Boogie Wonderland. And of course, in Fast Times, you know, there's a little minor plot point with Charles Jefferson wanting Earth, Wind, and Fire tickets. And so that's probably really where I heard even of their name. I, I don't even know if I connected the band that I saw on TV with that being Earth, Wind, and Fire. I don't really recall. And then, of course, in the early 80s, um, Easy Lover, which we played clips from and talked about, was a pretty big hit, you know, and big hit on MTV and stuff like that. And so I'm like, oh, this guy can really sing high. And people say, oh, yeah, it's Philip Bailey from Earth, Wind & Fire. And I started maybe putting all that together and and saying, oh, okay, so it's these songs I've heard of 
this guy is a really good singer, like crazy high falsetto. And I started listening to them a little bit more. And, and I wouldn't say I ever got into a period where I was obsessive about them um, early on, like, like you were. But over the years, I would just listen to them in, in, you know, in certain spurts. And the more I listened to them, the more I would like them. And every time I'd come back and revisit them as a band, I'm like, you know, this is better than I remember. This is better than I remember. And after some number of decades here, it's like, this was a great band. And we'll, we'll, we'll get right. into that. And so... I in really in the YouTube area to uh, era to be uh, honest, it was another kind of one of those kick in the pants where I got into them because I looked for videos, and I'd watch their videos, I'd watch their live videos, I would I watch you know their official live videos, which are kind of funny and fun, but they're really hard to watch because they're a little too psychedelic, you know, trail. You know, it's right. not something that you can video sort of, toaster kind of effects. Yeah, and, exactly. Video yeah, toaster. Very early. Of, I mean, these were promo clips, right? The Earth, One and Fire was making videos, videos of their of their material pretty early on, right? September was a promo clip before MTV, and we'll talk about MTV because that's a big part of this history as well. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was the kind of thing they were doing. A lot of bands like ELO has some like really early ones, and the Bee Gees, etc. There were a lot of these promo clips that were you know, maybe aired on TV once in a while, but there really wasn't a place for them until MTV kind of started repurposing them for, for their business. Yeah. And they're, they're pretty hard to watch, you know, although yeah. I still watch them, but, but I think in the YouTube era, I've definitely gone through periods where, um, you know, I I've watched um, their video, their live shows more and, and gotten into them. And I've, I obviously I never saw them live in their prime. I haven't seen them live since. And there's reasons why I'll get into that. But um, yeah, I, I just love their videos. I love their songs, and and I thought it was just great to, you know, revisit them here for for this. So, yeah, and and one thing I should mention too, as far as you know, the the history with them is the latest history, the past few weeks of kind of going back into their catalog and you know trying to study the history of the band. I didn't realize how important they kind of are. And I think that's going to factor into my evaluation a lot. And then the other thing I didn't ever pay attention to as a kid is, you know, I was listening to this music for its melody. You know, it was so catchy. These songs were so melodic to me, but there's just a level of sophistication with how these songs are arranged and how the musicians, I mean, you're talking about 14 guys, right? How they right. interact with each other. And it's, amazing you know listening to it again it's it's blown me away certain parts of these songs listening to how you know they're at one point so catchy but at another point they're like as sophisticated as music could get you know right. there's so much going on and so much advanced and uh you know vocal interplay and instrumentation with these with this band yeah no that's exactly right and as I've, you know, my musical tastes have, you know, expanded and grown and my appreciation for more sophisticated music has grown. It's also true that I appreciate that aspect of Earth, Wind and Fire. But to your point, early on, it was just like, wow, these are amazing pop songs. And like all good songs, there's a lot of layers to them or most good songs. I would say there's a lot of layers right. to them where you're like, oh, I didn't realize that it has this weird syncopation and this weird time signature change or these background vocals I really never noticed until I listened to them closely and things like that. So, right. Yeah. All right. So why don't we get into the, the setting the stage of how this band came together, where they came from and all those details. So why don't you get into right. that? Here? So as far as the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist section of our show is mostly 
kind of talking about the tenor of the times and what's going on musically and culturally, but also maybe what's influencing the band. So this is really comes from a couple of different directions with Earthworm and Fire and makes them interesting as a really unique band. Uh, one of the things that's part of an integral part of their foundation is this whole idea of jazz popularization. Right. So around this time, you know, you had your jazz and rock were so separate, but jazz has always kind of creeped into popular music. Right. You have the Duke Ellington, you know, and you have big band music of the 40s, which was kind of it was jazz, but it was the pop music of the times. Right. Um, As rock took over, jazz kind of got more esoteric. You know, you had free jazz, you had John Coltrane and these things. But there were also always these people kind of looking to kind of bridge the gap between popular music and jazz. And one of these guys who was one of the first guys to do so was Ramsey Lewis. And that, of course, is really interesting because Maurice White was the drummer of the Ramsey Lewis trio for a few years. So I think he learned a lot from Ramsey Lewis and a producer named Charles Stepney, who will go more into detail when we get into the band's history, about intermingling jazz with popular music. Ramsey Lewis is most famous for a song called The In Crowd, which was a popular jazz hit of the 60s that actually got into the pop charts. And this was kind of a new thing. Uh, You also had Quincy Jones, right, who was an arranger producer who played jazz influenced music, but it also crossed over to popular music and soundtracks and things like that. And he was instrumental and influencing, I think, the the direction uh, to people like Charles Stepney and He was a mentor also to Maurice White. And then, of course, you had Miles Davis. Now, the kind of jazz rock, jazz rock Miles Davis was playing was not pop music. You know, it was very sophisticated, very innovative. You know, you had the Miles Davis sextet, which is just an amazing group that was kind of veering toward rock. And then you have In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew. But that stuff is almost like more like progressive rock and more like advanced jazz. It's not you know, uh, pop music at all. But Miles Davis looms large as a figure to all music of the 20th century. And he was certainly influential to everyone at the time playing any kind of jazz and rock music. And what's funny is he would later say his favorite pop music band was Earth, Wind & Fire. So that goes to show you if Miles Davis respects you, you're even though you're doing pop music, you must be doing something musically interesting because he doesn't just like anything. You know, he he has very... um uh, you know, uh, he's very critical and very, uh, you know, exacting about his taste. And then, of course, there were rock bands that were also kind of doing this popularization. The most famous and popular by far was Chicago. And again, they had to have an influence on Earth, Wind and Fire because Earth, Wind and Fire would evolve to become more and more horn driven. Yeah. You know, the music is very horn driven with lead horns. And that's very much like Chicago. Right. I would also say, of course, Steely Dan was a, another example of, of, of this Steely too. Dan is definitely a jazz rock band, but I don't see a lot of influence on Earth, Wind and Fire right away. Maybe later, you know, especially with stuff like That's the Way of the World or maybe the more kind of, you know, the more streamlined stuff. I could see yep. Steely Dan, but Steely Dan was a huge, a huge innovator in this space. Right. I mean. Yep. Even from the get-go, Steely Dan was doing a lot of sophisticated stuff that you couldn't really call jazz rock. But once you get to like Pretzel Logic, you know, there's just no doubt it's That's very right. jazz, right? Um, and and uh, by the time Gaucho comes around, there's no question. Yeah, there's about it. there's a, in Asia yeah. too, right? You yeah. have these long yeah. passages and stuff. But it's it's again another band like Earth, Wind, and Fire. They share that where they're doing sophisticated stuff, but it's catchy as hell, right? It's pop music but it's more sophisticated than pop music normally gets. And I should, I should give a shout out to blood, sweat and tears. 
not a fan of this band at all, but they were another band that was popularizing this at the time. And uh, and then one I forgot to kind of put in my notes that's really critical and plays a big part in the history of Earth, Wind, and Fire. And the bands influenced each other back and forth with Santana, right. right? Santana was another band that was playing rock music and a lot of Latin influence stuff came in. And you will hear that in Earth, Wind, and Fire as well. And the bands toured together and they were friends. And then, of course, the later Santana, the 70s, late 70s Santana, they, you know, their, their early 70s is more rock. And then they go into a really hardcore fusion period where they're playing with John McLaughlin. But in the late 70s, they have a lot of R&B. And I think they were really influenced by Earthworm and Fire because the bands were friendly together, friendly with each other. And they toured extensively together. Earthworm and Fire opened up for Santana for uh, a, a few times. Um, and then, of course, the other direction. So we talk about jazz rock crossover is um, and again, crossover is a term we're going to say about 50 million times because Earthwind and Fire, that is the key to them. They are a crossover band. They were able to crossover between jazz and rock. They were able to crossover between pop and R&B. Right. So, of course, uh, you know, you have the you have R&B, you know, these hits of the early 60s and then you have. James Brown kind of introducing funk. But then one of the major, major influences on Earth, Wind & Fire, a true groundbreaking artist that I, you know, we could go into a whole show about him and how, what a major innovator he is, is Sly Stone, right? So Sly Stone took this R&B and funk and he took psychedelic music and he took pop and he became this major influence, like innovator. Also, he also was crossover in the sense that he was integrated. The band was both black and white musicians, which was absolutely unheard of for the most part, you know, in, in such a mainstream popular band. And then, of course, another influence on, uh, you know, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, which especially with their stage show would be Parliament and Funkadelic, which, again, was crossing over between hard rock, you know, psychedelic rock and funk. And then, you know, of course, there's the figures such as Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye who had moved beyond their early Motown leanings to kind of get more sophisticated with their music and arrangements. And I think these were another influence. Yep. And then of course, Earth, Wind and Fire didn't grow it out of a vacuum. They were part of the culture of the times, right? So in the late sixties and early seventies, a lot of African-American artists were getting more Afrocentric, you know, they were wearing uh, the African garb and they were, um, getting into the counterculture, Afrocentrism, you know, there were the Black Panthers and things like that. And we'll talk about the politics of Earth, Wind & Fire because they're not as overtly political as a lot of the artists of the times, but there is some of that. And of course, Maurice White became interested in, you know, Khalil, Khalil Gibran, the prophet, you know, in more spirituality that wasn't as Christian. Obviously, a lot of these guys were raised as Christians. But then he started, and there's the later influence of Egyptology, but he was really into astrology and that directly plays into the name of the band. And we'll go into that more. And of course he became a, you know, they became a vegetarian, you know, you and I were talking about this interview that Verdine White, uh, who is a member of the band uh, and um, Maurice White's half brother, uh, you know, a key member of the band. He was talking about how they went to California and got into yogurt. And that was his way of talking about how, you know, they became hippies as yogurt. We yeah, kind of laughed about was, that. was yeah. a euphemism for California hippies. Right. Like That's really yogurt. funny. Yeah. And then another thing of the time that was happening that Earth, Wind & Fire is a part of that I didn't really realize the extent before reaching uh, researching this 
the extent to which this was true of them is arena rock. So you have bands like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones starting to play stadiums, you know, where they were playing smaller venues before. You have Kiss, who we've talked about before, right? And even even this, as far as the elaborate stage shows, you have Parliament Funkadelic. So Kiss and Parliament Funkadelic were doing these stage shows where you know Par- Parliament had a UFO land on stage, and you know they have all this uh, uh, crazy stuff going on on stage, and then you have Kiss with their explosions and things like that. Well, Earth, Wind, and Fire stage show as we've come to discover was even more elaborate than these bands but they were one of the first along with stevie wonder probably the first and only band of this time to play stadiums they were a huge huge band and they played stadiums for both white and black audiences together in a i think in a way that is so critical and so important to music that would cross over in the 80s. And we'll talk about their influence in our evaluations, but obviously they influenced Prince and Michael Jackson. And I really have a strong argument for that, that they were integral to those artists becoming huge. And Michael Jackson, in the case of Michael Jackson, becoming the biggest artist in the world for the 80s. Um, So that's important. And then of course, there's this other thing that's happened in recent years, in the last 20 years, this, this thing we call yacht rock, right? This genre that is a mostly white genre that is very influenced by R&B and jazz chord, chord progressions. We talked about Steely Dan. They are probably the principal innovators of this, even though you know some people don't put them squarely in the yacht rock camp because they do so much more than that. But in, without a doubt, they're probably the principal innovators of this. But I would argue Earth, Wind & Fire are too. Uh, and they are, there's a lot of, um, you know, the album I Am, for instance, when you listen to that album, some of the album cuts, you're like, this is straight up Yacht Rock. You know, that's what it is. And of course, they work with David Foster, who would be involved in this genre, too. And, uh, you know, of course, um, Jay Graydon, who right. the famous guitarist who did the solo on Peg, he actually wrote After the Love is Gone or co-wrote that song. And so there's a lot of crossover there. So that's sort of the zeitgeist. He also now, wrote, by the way, weirdly. Co-wrote with Steve Luthicare, She's a Beauty from the King for the Tubes. For the Tubes. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And that weird. That's really interesting because I, yeah, I don't even think of that song as being part of that kind of pseudo genre that's been created. Or maybe I have that wrong. I know Steve Luthicare helped write that song, but maybe it was, um, no, I'm sorry. You know what it was? Turn Your Love Around. Oh, well, that uh, makes sense, right? I should mention George Benson Benson too, because actually George Benson is part of this too, because I think he might've been influenced by Earth, Wind & Fire because you talk about jazz popularization. There's no one who's, I mean, George Benson made Brazen, which which I think at at the time was the biggest selling jazz album in history, right? It was the big, and now I think kind of blue by Miles Davis is the all-time biggest seller. But at the time there was no jazz album, you know, there's Ramsey Lewis. He had, we'll talk about sun goddess and, you know, during the history, but um, there were very few jazz albums, you know, that were considered jazz that, that sold that much. I mean, Brazen was probably Brubeck was huge. Yeah. Brubeck was huge, obviously. Um, And, uh, and uh, you know, timeout. Right. Uh, But the, but the, uh, Breezen was an album. Yeah. And maybe in the early sixties, there was some popularization of jazz. Yeah. That's a whole history. You could go into the jazz crossovers, right? Uh, with Breezen though, you know, George Benson discovered he had an amazing voice, right? He was an amazing guitarist, but he had this amazing voice and he became a huge artist. So it makes sense because turn your love around and those kind of things, they kind of are in the same pocket as earth, wind and fire musically. So yeah, that's a really good point you bring up. 
So let's go into the band uh, band background. So obviously this this band is the baby, the the child of Maurice White. He is the constant in this band. He's the band leader, and uh, so I think it's a, it's interesting to go a little bit into his background. You know, he has a really interesting bio. He grew up in Tennessee originally, and he was. Uh, you know, his mother gave birth to him when she was 17 and she had this husband who was kind of this quasi gangster kind of no good Nick, you know, and she, he didn't really he wasn't really involved in Maurice White's childhood. And he died really young. He died when Maurice was only five years old. And uh, so his mother actually gave him to a family friend to raise because she wanted to move to Chicago to look for work because there wasn't much work for black people in Tennessee. It was basically like picking crops and, you know, not very good jobs or domestic help. So she thought she could have a better chance getting a more industrial job in Chicago. So she left him with a family friend he called mama and always referred to as his grandmother. And she raised him for the first like 10 or 15, 10 years of his, you know, maybe 15 years of his life until he was uh, uh, out of high school. And he grew up in Tennessee uh, and was very poor but he did manage to get a drum set and started to learn how to play drums. And while he was in high school, this is really interesting. He met two guys, David Porter uh, and Booker T. Jones. And David Porter was a singer, a songwriter, and Booker T. Jones was a musical prodigy who played multiple instruments. Now, Booker T. Jones would later go on to form Booker T. and the MGs, a very famous, uh, you know, instrumental, mostly instrumental R&B band. You know, their, their famous hit is Green Onions. And David Porter would go on to become this world-renowned songwriter and singer. And he wrote a lot of the early soul hits. He wrote Soul Man and uh, Hold On, I'm Coming for Sam and Dave. Uh, so it's really um, interesting that that happened. Now, he was with them in Tennessee, but then he eventually moved his... Um, his mother, his birth mother, married a doctor named um, Verdeen Adams, and she had more kids with him, including Verdeen White. So Verdeen White's, uh, they're actually, Verdeen White and Fred White, who would later join Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, they are actually uh, Marcus, uh, sorry, uh, Maurice White's half-brothers, but they would take on his actual last name. So it's kind of interesting. But uh, Verdeen Adams actually readopted Maurice White, and he came and lived with them. And he started going to the Chicago Conservatory of Music. And uh, he joined a group called the Jasmine. And some members of the Jasmine would later work with Earth, Wind & Fire as part of the world-famous Phoenix Horns, which we'll talk about more. Uh, that is Don Myrick and uh, Louis Satterfield. And they all became musicians, uh, session musicians for Chess Records, which was run out of Chicago. And while I, I just want to say something about uh, Louis Satter, uh, Satterfield is he's also a bassist, not just a trombonist. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he taught he taught Verdine White. Right. Yes, right. Yeah, so, I, for, I, I thought those were two different guys. I kind of mixed up. the. I thought there was another Satterfield. But, yeah, he was also a bassist. He was, he, and according to uh, Verdine, who will talk much more about his bass play, he was like learned everything on bass from from Lewis. And maybe people don't know that he was also a bassist. So. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. These multi-instrumentalists, how talented these people were. Uh, so so Maurice White, you know, he's a talented singer, a talented songwriter, a talented band band leader, also a fantastic drummer who he played on some legendary tracks while at chess. He played on Rescue Me by Fontella Bass. Also, you know, the original version of You're No Good. 
uh, by Betty Everett. And not the Van Halen version, not the Van Halen version okay. or the Linda Ronstadt version, yeah. uh, which I had always known. Um, uh, you know, they're pretty much, you know, obviously the Van Halen version is a lot different. The Linda <laughs> Ronstadt version is like a carbon copy of the original. It's not yeah. that different. And then, you know, Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson, among other songs, many other songs. Um, shortly after this, uh, he joined the Ramsey Lewis trio and you can find footage of him playing on like TV shows with Ramsey Lewis trio. And he is a kick-ass jazz drummer. He's totally awesome. It's kind of interesting. He would play percussion with Earth, Wind and Fire, but he wasn't really the main drummer. He would have another drummer. Uh, he'd His actually brother. have two drummers, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fred White later would join and there were yeah. other, other drummers. Um, by the way, I'm not going to be able to name all the members of Earth, Wind and Fire. I was kind of like, I should have a list of them. Uh, there's a few principal ones we'll touch on. But yeah, it's like there's so many shifting lineups with Earth, Wind and Fire and so many members because they're a massive band, right? Yeah. Uh, while with Ramsey Lewis, a really important thing happened, and that's that Maurice White discovered this uh, instrument called the kalimba, which is the African thumb piano, which would play a huge role in Earth, Wind and Fire, right? It's all over their music. And there's a really cool, uh, I forget what TV show it was on, but there's the cool footage I mentioned of him playing with Ramsey Lewis. And you could see him just get up and do a kalimba solo. And he's just crazy on this little instrument. It's so amazing how, what a virtuoso he was at that. So while with this, he, he kind of felt the need to do something new. And so he split off and formed this band called the Salty Peppers with Wade Flemons and Don Whitehead. And they eventually became Earth, One and Fire. And the name was based on, he's a Sagittarius. And I guess, you know, I don't know much about astrology, but he started getting into astrology. He went to astrology and he said, well, your, your you know, sign is, is, you know, there's the four elements related to astrological signs, earth, air, water, and fire. And it was interesting to the astrologer and to Maurice White that his sign was only earth, air, and fire. And so he changed that to Earth, Wind and Fire for the band name, which was kind of an interesting name for the times. But it was also showing, you know, kind of the psychedelic and hippie thing coming up. Maybe it was after he ate some Mexican food, potentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at that time, right, he formed Earth, Wind and Fire and, you know, with those two other members and they went to California and he also brought along Verdine who was becoming quite the bass player at the time. You know, his younger half-brother joined, right? So they went to California and they got a record contract uh, with uh, Warner Brothers Records and they gathered some more musicians in LA. And at this time, most of the musicians were either the same age as Maurice or a little older. Uh, Verdine was obviously a lot younger. And they released a debut album, which I actually have. Uh, and I'll talk more about that. Um, and that debut album actually does sound somewhat like a very rudimentary version of what would come later. You know, it's not near so ornate. The songs are kind of poppy. And during this time, also, they got a gig doing the soundtrack music for a very important film in film history, which is called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. This was the first black exploitation film ever made by Melvin Van Peebles. I've, I think I've watched this film a long time ago. I don't remember. It's a really weird movie. It's a very dark movie. It's a more serious movie than a lot of black exploitation films. Well, actually, most black exploitation films are kind of serious, but they're campy. This film is kind of a more of an art house film, but it was a huge sen sensation and a groundbreaking film. And they did the music for it. And if you listen to that soundtrack, it doesn't sound anything like them, really. I think they're more kind of doing what Melvin Van Peebles wanted, and they're really playing the role of a soundtrack. We'll talk about another soundtrack they did in, in the future, which is quite different. Um, 
And then after that, they created this album called The Need of Love. And this is, if you listen to this thing, this sounds nothing like what they would do after. It is a really weird album. It has these really long extended jazz tracks. And it one of the songs, the first song called Energy, is just like this really artsy jazz track with a female spoken word. Original, The original lineup of Earth, Wind & Fire had two female singers at the time. So they sound really different. Now, of course, none of these albums did much. Uh, they weren't really successful. And uh, the rest of the band was kind of getting a... a not they were not happy with Maurice White's leadership. They kind of looked down on him and were a little condescending. So they all basically quit, you know, and he was kind of on his own. And so he at this time, he two things happened right before they quit. They got a got a deal. They weren't happy with Warner Brothers. Uh, they they wanted to move record labels. And Clive Davis had heard them and was really pulled out by them. And Clive Davis was the main AR man for Columbia Records at the time. And so he signed them. Uh, and interestingly enough, their manager at this time, by the way, was Jim Brown. Jim Brown, if people know, was this uh, football player and actor of the early 70s who is universally recognized as one of the toughest, meanest, most badass guys ever. And a funny story, when they met Jim Brown to sign a contract with him, he just showed up at the door completely naked. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like you'd imagine this physical specimen, like he's just so unconcerned. So has no insecurities about being naked in front of these dudes. They were with him for a short time, but they would eventually outgrow him because he didn't really have the bandwidth to manage them. He was managing a lot of artists, but I always thought that was a funny story that Jim Brown was their actual manager uh, and that he'd showed up naked. So they switched to Columbia, uh, Clive Davis. And around this time, they they got a, you know, Maurice was able to recruit a whole new band. And one of these key members of the band we'll talk about later is Philip Bailey, right? Philip Bailey, it's funny, the funny story about Philip Bailey is he was raised in a, in a family of all women. And so when he sang falsetto, he was just trying to mimic them. He didn't really know he was doing this voice that was called falsetto. He just thought he wanted to sound like them as a little kid. And of course, we'll talk about this. He has one of the, probably the most amazing falsetto. You know, there's Brian Wilson is a great falsetto. Prince has a great falsetto. Bee Gees, uh, obviously. Right, right, the Bee Gees. But I, I don't know. I think it's hard to beat Philip Bailey's falsetto as far as pure power and just incredibleness. Yeah, right? you're probably right. Yeah. So they released this album, Last Days in Time, and this was a huge transition uh, for them. I have this record, too. It's Again, these early records are kind of spotty. They're not really what the band would become, but you can see the evolution. And this album, they started to get more poppy, and they have a couple of covers on the album that are really different than what they would have done before. One is uh, Where Have All the Flowers Gone, you know, uh, Pete Seeger's song, famous folk song, as popularized by uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. And of course, the other one, my favorite, is Make It With You by Bread, <laughs> which is sung in as an R&B soul kind of love song by Philip Bailey. It's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to play that stuff, really, because we want to devote more time to the Earth, Wind & Fire that I think is superior to this. Uh, at this time, they also released another album, Head to the Sky, uh, you know, they had a minor R&B hit called Evil. You can, again, hear more and more of the transition. But the female members quit after this time. And, you know, there was some more kind of lineup, minor lineup changes. Uh, after this, they got together with a producer called Charles Stepney that Maurice White knew. He knew him from working with Ramsey Lewis Trio because Charles Stepney worked with tons of artists in the 60s. And he was really known for kind of mixing jazz and R&B uh, with a lot of his, uh, you know, bands that he worked with. He had worked with another band called the Rotary uh, 
Connect convention, which was a really weird. I actually have one of their albums and they were this African-American vocal group that kind of did covers of various songs. They do weird covers, too. They did like Burning of the Midnight Lamp by Jimi Hendrix, and it's almost all vocals. And they were known for having this amazing singer named Minnie Ripperton, who you you may know her as the mother of Saturday Night Live alumnus uh, Maya Rudolph. That's her daughter. Right. So so Minnie Ripperton uh, had this incredible vocal range. She had like uh, five octaves plus. I mean, it was just insane. And she could sing really high. And her hit is called Loving You. And she does these, you know, these really high vocal. So so he was really good at doing vocal arrangements. And this would be a key to his work with Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, So he produced their album Open Our Eyes, which is a double album and a kind of overlooked classic in the Earth, Wind and Fire discography, I think. I think it's a fantastic record. It kind of shows everything they can do. It had two minor, uh, actually pretty major on the R&B charts, but minor top 40 hits, Mighty Mighty and Devotion uh, that around this time. And so they were gradually getting more popular. By the way, these albums, uh, Head to the Sky and Open Our Eyes, would eventually be platinum records. You know, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, most of their discography up to 1982 is platinum. You know, it's very rare that they would have a gold record. They were that popular. So also around this time, they played the California Jam. So this we start to see the crossover to white audiences, right? The California Jam was this concert that was broadcast on TV. You can watch all these bands on YouTube. You can watch Earth, Wind & Fire. You can watch uh, Black Sabbath played, Deep Purple, uh, The Eagles right? All, a lot of white bands, but Earth, Wind & Fire totally wins over the crowd with their with their stage show. And this wasn't even close to the stage show that we were going to talk about, right? right. Uh, also at this time, uh, Maurice White kind of helped his old friend Ramsey Lewis out with an album called Sun Goddess. And the title track of Sun Goddess, which Earth, Wind & Fire also records a live version of on Gratitude, was a huge jazz on one of these kind of crossover jazz hits. And Sun Goddess became a massive album, a top 10 album. And it, or I think it was top 12, but it was a one of these jazz crossover audiences uh, uh, albums. And Sun Goddess was actually played on mainstream radio. So he did this. And that was also working with Charles Stepney. Now, Charles Stepney really came into play with the next album Earth, Wind & Fire would do. And it's their most, probably their most important album as far as shifting them in to becoming a mega band. And that is, that's the way of the world. Now, this album is strange because I always thought of this as just a regular record. It looks like a regular record, but it's actually a soundtrack to a little known film that was produced and directed by Sig Shore. Sig Shore was the producer who was known for Superfly, right? And of course, Superfly is known, and we should have talked about this guy, the Curtis Mayfield, because uh, Maurice White had done, played drums on some of his songs in the 60s with his band, The Impressions. And Curtis Mayfield made a soundtrack for Superfly that is one of the greatest albums ever made. And it far, far exceeds the movie in quality. If you've ever seen Superfly, the movie, not the greatest movie, but the soundtrack is one of the best soundtracks ever made. And so Sig Shore wanted to repeat this by getting Earth, Wind & Fire involved. And what's interesting is Earth, Wind & Fire are also actors in the film. They're part of the plot. And they're cast as a band called The Group. And of course, they're kind of, you know, the, 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 the plot is basically the, the, you know, this producer, the studio leader for a record company played by Harvey Keitel wants to push this group called The Group. He knows they're good, but the record company wants to push this kind of, uh, you know, white bread vocal group uh, called The Pages. Nothing to do with the band that would be called Pages later with the, you know, 
the yacht rock band, but they wanted to push them instead of Earth, Wind & Fire. And Maurice White didn't have a good feeling about the movie. Uh, he didn't like Earth, Wind & Fire's role in the movie, and he he knew it was a bomb. So when it came time to do the soundtrack, normally they want to put the original soundtrack for That's the Way of the World, but he insisted it just looked like a regular Earth, Wind & Fire album. And of course, we know what happened, right? Because no one's ever heard of That's the Way of the World the movie because it was a complete bomb and it's actually was actually not really seen by many people but the album was an absolute blockbuster it hit number one on both the r&b and pop charts and of course the first single from that album was shining star earth winds earth and fire's highest charting song ever number one on all charts right and so that was a huge blockbuster and then of course the song that's the way of the world my beloved song was a top 12 hit as well so this album was massive and it made them a huge, huge arena band right after this. Of course, they followed this up with Gratitude, uh, another one of my favorite albums by Earth, Wind & Fire, a live album that also was number one album, off the, not only off the strength of That's the Way of the World, the album, but they had a great single on there called Single Song, Sing a Song, which was a top 10 hit uh, on all the R&B and pop charts. So... So they had, uh, because Gratitude is a three sides live album and the fourth side is just other singles. So they followed up Gratitude with an album called Spirit. This has the great uh, single, another chart, uh, mega chart hit uh, called Getaway. And they started working on this with Charles Stepney, but he died of a heart attack tragically while they were working on it. And so the song Spirit and the name Spirit, it, the song Spirit is an instrumental on the album and the, and the album Spirit is dedicated to him, right? Um, they followed this up with All in All, which would become another mega album with the based off of the songs Fantasy and Serpentine Fire. And one thing that's interesting I learned from researching this is Fantasy is actually incredibly popular on its own. Earth, Wind & Fire is popular in Japan, like some of the other bands we talked about, right? In yeah. the past, Cheap Trick and Kiss. Uh, but Fantasy alone is really popular in Japan. And it's played like, you know, they play like, They'll play like songs during ball games and stuff to rile up the crowd here. Fantasy is one they play in, in Japan during Japanese baseball games. You know, it's played all over the place. Yeah. So it was a huge hit in, in Japan. Um, and we'll talk more about the Japanese connection with that whole album. Uh, you know, uh, actually, we could talk about it now. I forgot I was going to mention this. Uh, I forgot to put it in my notes, but uh, the cover art for um, for uh, oh no, I have it here. Uh, the cover art for All in All was you know Mar- this is a time when after Spirit, which had pyramids on the album, uh, Maurice White was starting to get heavily into Egyptology, so he wanted a very Egyptian cover. And as you know, the cover for All in All is you know this incredible Egyptian landscape with pyramids and and sphinxes. And it was done by an artist named Shusei Nagaoka, who was a Japanese artist who spoke no English at all. And so he basically kind of got some rough notes from Maurice uh, White and created this incredible album cover out of it. So that was kind of interesting, another thing. Uh, during this time, Maurice White also showed that he was an incredible businessman. He created this company called Kalimba Productions. They signed some artists, Denise Williams, and uh, critically, a band called The Emotions. And Maurice White would produce their mega hit, The Best of My Love. This is a number one disco song that came out at the time. And uh, that was, you know, that kind of showed his, uh, you know, his uh, ambition and his acumen as a businessman. Uh, Also, during this time, he wanted to ramp up uh, Earth, Wind & Fire's live game 
And so he contacted a uh, world-renowned musician, uh, magician, Doug Henning, who was, he was famous. He had a, a, Doug Henning had a TV show that was really popular at the time. And he was kind of the most popular mu- magician at the time. And he also had an assistant named David Copperfield who would go on to become a great magician. And they actually worked out some magic tricks which I'm going to talk more about in my evaluation, or Jeff might talk about them. They are quite amazing uh, tricks, uh, and you can find footage of them, and we'll link to that in the show notes so you can see actually the magic trick they did that we'll describe. Um, and they also uh, contacted choreographer George Faison, who was most famous for choreographing the Broadway show The Wiz, and he worked on them with these elaborate dance moves they would do uh, as part of their stage show. And they kind were playing drill sergeant type, you know, they're complaining yeah. that he was kind of a dick. Yeah, he was pretty serious. But this this just goes to show how much thought and how much care they put into their live act. And they were playing arenas at this time. They were absolutely massive. Uh, something that made them even more massive was 1978's Greatest Hits album. This is their biggest selling album of all time, along with their biggest selling single, which was a uh, added track to the album was September. Uh, It was a top 10 hit at the time, but it's gone on since to be one of the most popular songs of all time. It's uh, over 6 million records sold. Uh, It's quite a massive hit. Um, And then they released a Greatest Hits album, as I mentioned. And unfortunately, my one qualm with Greatest Hits album is I don't know why Serpentine Fire isn't on there. It actually was a bigger hit than Fantasy, but Fantasy is on there. But I can't complain too much because anything that makes room for September is okay by me. They also uh, had another dubious movie connection at the time. They were approached by Robert Stigwood, who was the, uh, you know, the impresario, the the kind of Svengali who helped bring the Bee Gees back and make them the biggest band in the world for a while. Uh, He was following up his uh, Saturday Night Fever hit with a a kind of musical adaptation based on Beatles music called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, also starring the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton. Um, and he approached Earth, Wind, and Fire late in the game to kind of choose a song to do. The, the soundtrack was just a bunch of artists doing Beatles covers, right? Uh, most famously, Earth, Wind, and Fire is most famous. We'll get into that. But obviously, also another big one was uh, Aerosmith doing Come Together, um, along with some really dubious uh, contributions from Steve Martin and George Burns. It's pretty, the movie was an absolute bomb. It is one of the worst movies ever made by popular uh, consensus. And the soundtrack isn't very good with one shining example was well, one shining exception, which is Earth, Wind and Fire's cover of Got to Get You Into My Life, which I'll talk more about in my evaluation, which was a top 10 hit and by far the biggest single from that album. So they were top of the world at this time. Uh, they, of course, at the time, disco was popular because of Saturday Night Fever and the Bee Gees. So they got offered this song called Boogie Wonderland. And originally they were going to give it to another band to do but uh one of the other artists uh that uh maurice white was producing but the other artists couldn't get it right so earth one and fire did it as a collaboration with the emotions also during this time maurice uh white formed a record company called arc records it would be relatively short-lived but i remember when i bought i am it it's the columbia records label in the middle but it just says arc in these letters at the top and that was his kind of own record label he started briefly um, and of course, another hit on this record was his collaboration with who, uh, a producer who would become one of the most important producers of the 80s, David Foster, for good and bad, which we'll talk about in my evaluation. But um, 
you know, he 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 brought him the song after the love is gone, which he kind of co-wrote with Jay Graydon. And that became a, a massive hit as well. Uh, you know, but during this time, Earth, Wind and Fire started to see some kind of conflict in the band. You know, there's some band members using drugs. And, you know, this happens when you kind of spread yourself too thin. I think Maurice White was trying to get into too many things at once. And there were some, you know, Al McKay obviously uh, quit the band, um, you know, uh, out of frustration. And um, I think, Jeff, you wanted to say something about Al McKay uh, here. Yeah, I mean, he he just went on in later years and even to this day to create something called Al McKay's Earth, Wind, Fire Experience, which is just lame. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, we it, it's just part of this larger sort of thing where the you know, founding members of bands or original members of bands go on because of legal issues. They want to tour around and play songs and they can't name themselves Earth, Wind and Fire. So they have to say the songs of Earth, Wind and Fire as, you know, realized by Al McKay or whatever it is. This is it's just kind of stupid because he's playing guitar with this whole other band who has nothing to do with Earth, Wind and Fire. I know he wrote his founding member or early member, not a founding member, early member. He co-wrote September and some other songs. But this is kind of lame. I mean, I don't really have a problem if people are up front and say, you know, this is the Al McKay Earth, Wind, Fire experience. That's totally right. fine. Um, but, and people want to pay for that. I just think those kind of things are lame. That's all. I just yeah, a lot of bands that. do that. Like, yes is another example where there's two yeses. There's yeah. one with John. And, you know, it's like, come on, guys. Yeah. Um, so around this time, they released this du- really ambitious double album. I think it's even more Yacht Rock than I Am is called Faces. But it didn't really have any standout songs and it only went gold, you know, and it was kind of uh, a, a kind of uh, indication that things were kind of on the downturn, you know, uh, from their massive popularity. However, they had a huge comeback with the 1981 album Rays. They had the song Let's Groove Tonight, which was a number two hit. It was a massive song. And a very catchy song, but, you know, kind of not as sophisticated or interesting as some of their other work. But it was, you know, a catchy song is a catchy song and it was a hit. Uh, And around this time, MTV was starting up. And of course, MTV wouldn't play any black artists. They were basically racist. I mean, they were out and out racist. They were like, well, I won't appear to we're like an AOR station or whatever. Um, and, but they would play stuff like Lee Rittenauer, you know, if you've ever Lee Rittenauer is another jazz crossover artist and they would play that. And that's pretty much R and B music, but it's obviously he was white, you know, I mean, it was complete racism. And the, the person who most kind of was activist was the activist to try to protest this in the public was Rick James, right? Because Rick James had super freak, which was a massive song, but MTV wouldn't play it. And what's ironic is Rick James is kind of a rock guy too. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it was just, and Maurice White in and his a cocaine auto- aficionado. Oh well. yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, we can talk going to whole Rick James is a problematic guy in a lot of ways. Uh, a very interesting story there, but, but Maurice White also talks about how frustrated earth, wind and fire was, you know, they're still playing arenas and they're still playing to white and black audiences yet MTV wouldn't play them. It wasn't until uh, then Columbia uh, records had Walter Yetnikoff threatened to, to, take all Columbia Records artists uh, away from MTV and not play them uh, if he, if they wouldn't play Michael Jackson. And so Michael Jackson ended up being breaking the color barrier there. And obviously Michael Jackson and Prince and then eventually Black artists became the most popular artists on MTV once rap came uh, to be with Yo! MTV Raps. 
so that was an interesting part of the history where Earth, Wind, and Fire kind of played into that uh, history as well. You know, we could talk a little bit about the post-prime Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know, they didn't really do much after this. They had a few more albums, Power Light, Electric Universe, um, and uh, they didn't do much on the charts. They were definitely not, they were definitely out of their uh, popular prime. Uh, and during this time, Maurice White started to feel tired and he decided to disband the band for a while. And he did a solo album. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the most successful solo album of any of the Earth, Wind & Fire solo albums was Philip Bailey's Chinese Wall, which included his duet with uh, Phil Collins' Easy Lover, which was a number two hit, massive song. But also around this time, Maurice White discovered that he had Parkinson's disease. He had early on, you know, uh, Parkinson's disease. Um, but he still kind of soldiered on with the band for a while. It's amazing. I think his healthy lifestyle, you know, he never did drugs. He was vegetarian. He always played tennis and was very athletic. I think that enabled him to live quite a long time with Parkinson's disease, you know, because he was just in his 40s when he was diagnosed. But he ended up living till 2016, you know, until his 70s. Yeah. Um, and he still was able to play with the band. His last appearance with the band, I think, was in the early 2000s. Uh, but they made some other albums, Touch the World, Heritage, Millennium. You know, they did okay. They were more kind of R&B chart hits. They didn't really cross over like the Earth, Wind & Fire before. And, you know, they still played. Uh, uh, but Morris, Maurice White in the 90s stopped touring with them, basically. And so they toured without him. Uh, and they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the year 2000. And so he was there for that. Um, but, um, yeah, I think... Uh, you know, they've they've lived on their legacy has lived on. But that's basically the history. That's all I have to say. I'm not sure if you wanted to add anything on top of that. No, no, we can get into, um, you know, evaluations here. Um, look, I love Earth, Wind and Fire. I think it's probably pretty clear to me. Their music, the best parts of their music is about joy. I mean, the word joy just keep, kept coming into my mind, watching them, listening to them. Joy is the word. Watching them perform, it's even more so. It's like it's it's almost like an undeniable uh, magic about them performing, especially in their in their prime uh, years. I, I really think that they have a bit of, um, you know, not a bit, but a lot of actually a universal appeal there. I would. I just want to say that when you said that, when you when you kind of told me that earlier, I was like, this is perfect, you know. Uh, and and you know, I will talk about this too. But I think we often underestimate how that is a good thing, right? With a band that just that pure joy and enjoyment, there's something to be said for that, that often, you know, when we talk about criticism, we're always looking for something to be important or dark, or, you know, we often look to things to be dark or edgy and or profound or whatever. And profound, but there's, yeah. there's something to be said for capturing that pure state of joy in the form of music that I think is often overlooked by critics. And I think it's, it's such a perfect way of encapsulating what they're about. And I think you nailed it right there. I mean, that was the word that kept coming back to me every time I would listen to their music or watch their videos, either their kind of video toaster, kind of cheesy videos, honestly, or their live shows, which are incredible. Speaking of live shows, the, to me, even looking at, there's not a lot of great quality video of them performing live during their prime, you know, late 70s and early 80s and stuff like that. Um, there's some, but it's, to me, watching them, even in those not great quality videos, they're one of the most exciting, compelling live bands in history. I, I just can't think of a band that's more compelling to watch 
their kind of live performance and how good they were as performers. And you might say, well, yeah, there's 14 people on stage. It's kind of chaotic and crazy, but it's just sort of worked. I mean, all the, all the sort of dedication that they put into making their, their band and their live show better, including the, you know, choreography and all that kind of stuff. It, it just worked. And I just am amazed by that still to this day. I can't think of another band that is just more compelling to, to watch there are parts of their stage show that you might say are a little goofy and you cringeworthy. Some of the space stuff that they um, uh, did at times was that way, but um, it worked. You know, I I even look at it and kind of laugh. They're, they had this part where you know some dude comes out on stage and you know and like he's some space alien and they battle oh, him. Yeah, with, I mean, it's a little silly, I have to say, but that's still, never silly to me, dude. I always <laughs> love that shit. Like yeah. Dio, shoot, Dio's like, what is it? Um, uh, Vivian Campbell, Dio's guitarist, like yeah. shooting space lasers, lasers at, at spiders floating in the air. Like yeah. These big spiders or a dragon comes on stage. Or of course, Eddie from Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's to me, that's always a plus. Like I, the space <laughs> alien thing, I could, I could, I could, I wish every band would fucking do that. You know, I don't yeah. care who they are. I always love that. Totally, totally. So anyway, even though there are those elements that, I don't know, I think sometimes are questionable, they kind of make work. It just works for Earth, Wind, and Fire. So just going into the the band members a little bit here, uh, obviously we talked about Maurice White being the genius behind the band. Um, to me, as great as the others are, are, other people are in the band, Earth, Wind, and Fire was Maurice White. And his... Um, charisma and talent as the leader of that band, obviously offstage as well, but on stage was central to the, to the band. And to me, watching them perform live and watching him sort of orchestrate that live show um, is pretty magical. Like you can't keep your eyes off of him. There's just something compelling about him as a performer um, leading the, the whole experience there. Um, Verdine White obviously is a, also a magical, uh, magnetic presence on stage, the bass player. One thing about uh, Verdine is if you watch him perform, he's just moving constantly. He just won't stop moving and he's like vibrating constantly, almost like an atom, if you've seen like, you know, little visualizations of what that looks like. And yeah. I don't know if he is a, uh, a cocaine aficionado, like a Rick James type. I don't think he is. He seems I don't, to- I don't think so. I think, I mean, when I, when I, uh, researched, you know, the kind of life of, I, I listened to, uh, Maurice White's audiobook. he actually mentions that Fred White, his other brother did get into cocaine, but more, yeah. Maurice and Verdine were both really health, health, yep. health nuts, you know, and, and, Verdine is the world's skinniest man, by the way. He's so yeah. he's so lean, but yeah, his energy is just insane. I don't know how he could do it. That, yeah. I mean, I, clearly he's just a you know very energetic, healthy dude if he's not doing coke. But it, I mean, it's just like crazy amount of just you know motion and you know intensity and agitation in the best possible way uh, on stage. I got to talk about his hair because it's just magnificent. I just love his yeah. hair. He, yeah. he just he he decided at some point to grow out his afro, um, and kind of has like a, a press straightened look. And you know that was kind of in vogue for a while. I think in the eighties. You know, we mentioned Rick James kind of had that look too. For Dean, just stuck with it and still rocking it today. And he not only is rocking it, he embraces it and he's curling it and he's yeah. like 
I just got to say, I dig it. I yeah, think it's his, awesome. His image is so cool and his demeanor is so cool. He's such a you cool know? dude. Like he listening is. to interviews, he's just a, he's just yeah. a cool cat. Seems like a really nice guy too. And oh yeah, most importantly, he's an incredible freaking bass player. Um, you know, he, I think he's one of the, the best uh, funk bass players for sure ever. Um, you know, Bootsy Collins, obviously you mentioned, you know, a Parliament Funkadelic. Bootsy Collins is is a great bass player too. And when people think of funk bass players, Bootsy Collins' name is the one that usually comes up. But I think Verdine's better. I think he's yeah. technically better. I think his playing is more interesting. I think his stage presence is way more interesting than uh, Bootsy Collins. Well, you could argue yeah, yeah, Bootsy's kind of a, a different sort of stage presence, right? I think with Bootsy, a lot of it is his image. You know, the yeah. way he, I mean, he is super cool. You watch him talk, it's amazing. And he's got, the, you know, the whole outfit, right? The star glasses and all that yeah. stuff. Um, and he is really good as well. You know, he started with James Brown. He's yeah, an excellent definitely. musician and he has a very unique style. But I'm going to agree with you as far as virtuosity, you can't really beat Verdine. He's awesome. I mean, he is insane. I mean, we'll play some clips and stuff of some of the and just musically, like even, you know, we'll talk about Shining Star, but even some of the stuff in Shining Star, just the, the way the bass, it's so idiosyncratic and it works like his parts are just so original. But I, I agree with you. I think he's like unsung. I think you were the one who really brought this to my attention. And I was like. Yeah, I always listen to these songs and I I knew they were great musicians, but when I really listened to what he does, I was like, wow, he's he's really underrated. Like he not is. enough people talk about what a what an amazing player he was. Not just his solos, but just his parts in regular in the regular pop songs are just these I mean the inspiration to come up with this stuff. I I just think it's musical genius. And I think he obviously because Earth, Wind, and Fire, as we were saying, was such a huge band. He was hugely influential, and he, yeah. in in weird ways, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks this. When I listen to his playing, even though it's a completely different genre of music, I hear Paul McCartney a lot. Like oh, I yeah. think he was very. Influ I mean, Paul McCartney was definitely influential in about a trillion ways, obviously. Yeah. But his kind of walking, more complicated bass lines during the, the Beatles' early years oh, and, yeah. and beyond were hugely influential to bass players forevermore, right? And I and I think, um, obviously, Verdine was a huge Beatles fan. He talks about that a lot. And so I, I actually hear Paul McCartney's influence in Verdine, and Verdine would influence, I think, everyone else since. Excellent, and, excellent point. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't think about that until you just said it. That's absolutely true. I mean, Paul McCartney will take a simple song, and he has these amazing melodic bass parts. Uh, and Verdine is, that's what I think what I was trying to get at. He yeah. does the same thing with with songs you would expect, a, you know, a simple walking part or something. But then he's all over the, you know, he's just doing these elaborate uh, things. And I'll talk more about that in, in some of my evaluation, too, because I see him as an influence on other. Yeah, I, I, I can see the influence on even contemporaries of the time that you're talking about. You know, and, and people like Verdine and Bootsy, people would always say, well, you know, their main influence was like James Jamerson and the Motown stuff. Unquestionably true. But I think in Verdine's case, he takes all that plus stuff like Paul McCartney and yeah. combines it together. And jazz. And, and jazz, Of too. course, and jazz. And, and mm -hmm. Verdine talks about how he took a, a bass lesson from Ron Carter, uh, obviously a great jazz right. bass, very famous jazz bassist. And he said the lesson didn't go so well because they were playing upright, but he said it was still good to do. He just wanted to meet uh, Ron, Ron right. Carter. Um Anyway, Verdine as a performer, just the incredible uh, stage energy. But 
the magic gag, uh, gag, the stage gag where he levitates um, sideways here um, is pretty incredible. We'll put yeah. maybe a video of that in the show notes. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. The video, the video I'm talking about actually has both this and the actual, the more elaborate trick I'm going to go into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really cool. Um, Philip Bailey, obviously another key member of the band. We already talked about his falsetto, the easy lover, uh, duet. We, we mentioned there's a scene in the video. If you check it out where, um, they're trying to figure out what uh, wardrobe they're going to wear to record the video. The video is about them making the video. So it's kind of like circular or meta or whatever you want to say. Um, but there's a scene where they're trying to figure out what to wear. And Philip Bailey is like looking at different suits and stuff like that. And Phil Collins shows up with Philip Bailey's like, you know, uh, early disco 1980s uh, outfit, pretending that he that Phil Collins is going to wear uh, that Earth, Wind, and Fire outfit is kind of funny. It's just like a that is little, funny, yeah. little scene, but he has it with the headband and the whole thing. It's, you know, wackiness. Um, you know, the Chinese Wall album you mentioned obviously had the Phoenix Horns guys playing on it. But the, the other uh, thing I wanted to mention is that on that album, Nathan East was the bassist um, for that song. And part of that album, there's different session bassists. Who's, he's a very, very famous uh, session Oh, okay, cool. Who no doubt was hugely influenced by, by Verdine, right? So um, that that was kind of interesting. Um, I, the other thing about Philip Bailey, obviously he's known for his falsetto, but in the post-Maurice White years of Earth, Wind, and Fire, um, Philip Bailey would sing the Maurice, Weiss part, uh, Maurice White parts of the show and the falsetto parts. Um, and he is a really great singer and he sounds pretty good. But he just lacks, you know, Maurice White's presence as a front man. I mean, most people do. Maurice is just, you know, incredible there. And I think when Maurice wasn't really part of the scene on the live shows, he just lost something major. Like, you cannot replace it. And the current incarnations to me are just, I mean, it's not quite fair to say it's almost like a cover band because it does have, you know, Philip Bailey and yeah. Ralph Johnson and, and Verdina, of course, and all that. But without Maurice, it's just it's not the same thing for me. It just isn't. I agree. I think uh I think the way their voices work together is what makes it, right? Yep. And uh, you know, Maurice a great singer in his own right. But you just having that falsetto with, you know, and maybe another, I think they brought in another younger singer. It's just not the same. You need Maurice. Yeah. That's what we talked about. That's why I went so into Maurice's background more than the others. Cause he's really earth, one and fire without Maurice really isn't earth, one and fire. It just yeah. isn't. I mean, just, just his image, the, the visage right. of him when his outfits and his Afro and his smile and, you know, all of it is just pretty, Pretty incredible. Like I, I've been texting Slip the same picture of Maurice White. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two weeks just because I just love it so much. Um, because he he really represents everything to me about the 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 joy of, of the band. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other very talented musicians in the band. I, I, I'm not gonna go into all of them because you know there's 14 people, but I mean everybody contributed to the band. I I think the horns and the drums and like on the live stage show, you'd have five or six different people playing percussion or different parts. And, you know, the guitarists, they've had a series of good guitarists, you know, Johnny Graham and, and Al McKay we talked about, and the, the later ones were all pretty good um, as well. Um, let's talk about their songs. You can't talk about Earth, Wind & Fire without talking about uh, September. So let me just play a little clip of that. 
bass line. Awesome. Slapping. not smile when you hear that song it's true I mean, it's funny uh you know i should mention that uh one thing that flea said was you know he's obviously influenced by verdine yeah. um and he said you know when i was growing up in in school all the black kids liked parliament funkadelic all the white kids liked led zeppelin and everybody liked earth wind and fire and i yeah. think september there is there anyone in the world who doesn't love this song it's, i mean i can't great. imagine it I can't imagine it. I, I mean, it's a great song. I think it's really one of the greatest songs ever recorded, honestly. Um, one thing I want to bring people's attention to, you know, we keep talking about joy. We keep talking about how the band embodied that. There's the official video toaster, uh, you know, we keep joking yeah. about it. It's a pretty cheesy video. Um, but go and watch it. We'll put the link in the, in the show notes. Five seconds in, there's like a one second little clip of Verdine dancing around. And it's just, it captures just that one little, like one second clip just captures everything about the song and about the band in like a second, second and a half. And just go and, and check that out uh, if you would. I think you'll you'll agree. Um, the disco Earth, Wind and Fire songs. Yeah, you know, they talk a lot about in the documentaries and, you know, in the various interviews and stuff that they were basically trying to cash in on disco and the commercialism of disco and and we talked you talked a little bit about let's groove and, and boogie wonderland um are are they disco songs that they're trying to you know make a buck on yes but are they also great songs yes so i listened to let's groove for a second little peter frampton talk box there yeah, yeah. The video for this is pretty funny too. Yeah. It's charming. Philip Bailey, man, like that makes yeah. that song to me that little oh, yeah. right there. Yeah, it's true. And just the, the the way, just to think of like, okay, we're gonna have Philip Bailey do this part. We're gonna have this, you know, kind of effect on the on the main part. It's just perfect. It is, a Boogie Wonderland. You know, I played a little bit of uh, Al Shervek uh, in uh, uh, Caddyshack, obviously, uh, with this song. <laughs> you know, let's play a little bit of this live version. A little bit different lines, but... You get the idea there. Um, The other song I want to play a little bit is probably... I I mean, September is probably my favorite, I have to say. But my second favorite 
Earth, Wind and Fire song is Getaway, which I think is just an absolute funk masterpiece. I want to play a little bit of that. Listen to that fucking song, right? Yeah, there's so much going on, right? Vocal, there's overlaying vocals and everything, and there's like, the, you know, the music is complex. The horn arrangement is so sophisticated. The bass is going wild. I mean, but it's catchy as yeah. hell, right? They, they're able to do this complexity, but make it so accessible at the same time. So you can listen to it on the level of, oh yeah, I can hear the melody. And then you could go deeper and just listen to all the interaction and interplay. It's so awesome. It is. It is. I never get sick of that song either. And as you said, there's so much going on in so many levels and the inner playing the voices between Maurice White and obviously Philip Bailey is, is pretty incredible. Um, you mentioned this a few minutes ago, sing a song. I just want to play a little clip of this. Live. Pure joy right there, right? Um, watch the live version of this song. You find it's pretty amazing. Their live versions are all sort of different. I mean, it's like, that's a lot faster, right? For instance, Shiny Star live version uh, is a lot faster. There's there, And then there's a, that's the way the world version. That's like just almost, you know, it's so different, the arrangement. So they they kind of really rehearsed and, and perfected these songs to give them kind of more energy live. Yeah. And it kind of goes again, goes back to what a great live band they are. Yeah. Speaking of live and Shining Star, I want to play another clip. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to that fucking yeah. bass, dude. So it just Bootsy. throws in those yeah. little licks and yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's just a it's just a great uh, bass line uh, for sure. Um, of course, we have other songs that are a little bit different. Um, the last one I want to play here is Reasons, uh, you know, Philip Bailey sings. So let me uh, play a little clip of that. 
Wow, that's a yeah. high, high, high vocal, vocal tour de force is yeah. what I call it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and uh, you know, as you said, I think uh, he probably didn't go home alone that night. That night. <laughs> uh, but the the thing about this song, which is funny, because it reminded me of something else. This song, if you listen to the lyrics, it's pretty much of like you know, thanks for the booty call, but I, I must have been pretty drunk last night. Uh, you're gonna have to get the fuck out now, kind of thing. Uh, you know, about the song. And and it's funny because Philip Bailey talks about how people come up to him and say, hey, this is our wedding song. This is our song as a couple. And he's like, are you serious? Do you not listen to the lyrics? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and he's just like, he's taken aback by it. It was just reminding me of other kind of songs like that of the 70s. Like one is a little bit more uh, classier in a way uh, of a booty call song. Uh, England Dan and John Ford Coley about... Uh, you know, I really like to see you tonight. Um, it's basically the same kind of thing. It's not as uh, the lyrics are a little bit different, right? Than the Philip Bailey Reason song, right? Um, but it's kind of the same topic. But it was just making me think of other misunderstood romantic lyrics where people are like, "Oh, this is our song. This is what we danced to at our wedding." One was "Careless Whisper," which by Wham or you know George Michael, which. People I've heard like say that, you know, oh, this is such a romantic song. It's not. It's about this dude getting caught cheating. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, like, it's so weird to me that people don't even listen to the lyrics. Obviously, probably the most famous one of this is Every Breath You Take by The Police, which is a song about a stalker, basically. And, like, I've heard Sting multiple times saying, you know how many people come up to me and say this is, like, their, you know, their favorite wedding song or song as a couple? He's like... He does, he's shaking his head. And it's like, people don't listen to the lyrics. And it was leading me to wonder if, um, you know, people would go up to, uh, you know, fucking uh, the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, and say, hey, you know what our wedding song is? Under My Thumb. That's just like the most romantic song in the world or something like that, because people are pretty clueless, right? All right, final evaluation for me. Um, I'm definitely long on Earth, Wind, and Fire, as you already guessed. Um, I think this is true, even though a huge part of their appeal was their live show for that period of time that we're talking about from like the mid-70s into the early 80s. Obviously, they performed beyond that, but I think as it got later into the 80s and 90s, Maurice White's health was deteriorating and his ca capacity to really perform at the extremely high level that he did right. in the early 80s. This wasn't there. There's videos of him performing where you could just tell something's not right. And that almost that joy is not quite there, you know, and it's hard to watch for me because such a big part of their music is about his performance in particular, right? Um, I think that, um, you know, that live performance stuff is not going to years from now, decades from now, there's a lot of grainy videos and stuff like that. There's not like some uh, recorded on film concert, like a song remains the same type thing where you can kind of see higher production values and things like that. But that being said, what they are going to be evaluated on is the quality of the songs, many of which, you know, I played samples of. And listening to many of these now 40 years after they're made, I think they're even better than I ever thought they were. I thought they were better than I thought they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think that's just going to continue. I think people are going to listen to this music forever. And you, people are going to listen to September forever. And 50 years from now, I go, that's still a great fucking song. There's no question about it to me. I think they go down as one of the most seminal and influential bands of the 70s. 
And uh, really all time, when you, when you really look at the, the pantheon of, of, of bands. And again, I can't think of a band even to this day that has ever put on a more live, uh, more exciting live show uh, than Earth, Wind & Fire. So there you go, long, and uh, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a great evaluation. It's probably going to land somewhere similar. But I want to start out with something. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some potential downsides of the band or some cri possible criticisms you could make. Uh, you know, uh, maybe the down, maybe uh, on the other side of this. You know, uh, the first is, of course, you know, we played some clips at the beginning. We always play our introductory clips and. I kind of like that they're mysterious to people, but we often, you know, and sometimes we'll refer back to them, you know, later in the show. Sometimes we won't, right? So one of the clips we played at the beginning was uh, from a song called Let's Take It to the Stage by Funkadelic. This is a song where George Clinton kind of goes on this rant, right? And he says the, the phrase, earth, hot air, and no fire, right? As a criticism of earth, wind, and fire, right? So they were kind of, to him, more of a milk toast mainstream kind of, you know, maybe watered down version of what he was doing. And I think that his, that was his sort of diss on them. You know, it was kind of an early kind of almost hip hop style diss. But if you listen to that whole song, he disses cool in the gang, James Brown, you know, he, he disses like, and James Brown, I mean, how can you diss the guy who invented the kind of music you're playing? Right. right. So yeah. I think it, it, it's, it should be taken with a grain of salt that he was actually really dissing them that much. And I, of course there was some jealousy there, right? I mean, Earth, Wind & Fire was way bigger than Parliament Funkadelic and they were influenced by probably each other, right? Yeah. And I don't doubt that George Clinton respects their musicianship and stuff like that. But I always thought that was an interesting thing I thought about. And I probably thought about that when I started getting into Funkadelic. I'm like, well, this is the real shit. And, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire is kind of, you know, the mainstream version of this. But, you know, obviously I don't believe that now. And I actually think, that Earth, Wind, and Fire, I like them more, much more than Parliament and Funkadelic overall. I think they're better. And I think that their mixture of things is not a criticism. It's actually a positive strike in their favor. So I kind of disagree with that criticism, but I, I, but I do think there's something about them that's, you know, they're more lightweight in a way because they're singing about joy and these positive things. And often we, you know, as critics and things, we're looking for something, uh, you know, biting and satirical and critical, right? Um, the other thing is, of course, is Earth, Wind & Fire's discography is a bit spotty when it comes to their albums, right? You have a couple of albums that I think are really solid. You have Open Our Eyes uh, is really solid. It's a double album. It's got a lot of variety. It's a really interesting record that I think is worth seeking out for people and listening to. Uh, you know, it only has a devotion. It's probably the only thing that people might know. It doesn't have a lot of hits. There's a lot of weird musical jazz and experimental interludes. And I really have come to think it's quite an overlooked gem in their catalog. Uh, That's the Way of the World is pretty much good all the way straight straight through it, even the album cuts you know you have some other maybe somewhat known songs like yearn and learning are, are great and then all in all even though it's a bit front loaded you know the first side of all in all is an absolute masterpiece and the second side it kind of wanes a bit you know as far as the material uh one of the things we played in the intro too is this little instrumental interlude called by Bai, by which um is from all in all 
And it's one of the most sampled pieces of music ever. It's a hip hop artist, like A Tribe Called Quest have sampled it. That's why I wanted to play it because it might be familiar to people from other contexts and shows their influences. But I think they do have a couple of all out classics. One is their kind of catalog of hits. You know, they have a few greatest hits compilations, obviously greatest hits volume one came out while they were together. There's another better one that includes Let's Groove and Serpentine Fire uh, that came out maybe in the late eighties. And those hits, you those that's that's like five star 10 out of 10 masterpiece right all of those hits together in one collection you can't really deny how good it is so i would yeah. say that's a strike in their favor and i think gratitude is a 10 out of 10 i think gratitude is an absolute masterpiece um it shows the what they could do live with more kind of fusiony more instrumental jams uh as well as on side four what they could do with a pop song, right? That includes sing a song and can't hide love. I'm going to talk a little bit more about can't hide love. So again, are they lightweight because they, you know, they didn't have like these seminal album, like a songs in the key of life or a what's going on, or there's a riot going on. Right. And then these other albums are more political, like what's going on, you know, has become much more prominent recently because Rolling Stone kind of re rejiggered their top 500 to put that as a number one album of all time. I don't know if it's a number one album of all time. It's certainly probably in the top 10 or 20 just because of its impact and because of what the, you know, the, the big bold stride and ambition that was involved in it with Mar Marvin Gaye putting his career on the line as a pop singer to do something so artsy. Right. And, you know, and you have songs in the key of life, this massive double album that's, you know, so political and so musically adventurous. Although I would argue that a lot of songs in the key of life uh, is very influenced by earth, wind and fire. You know, they have a song, there's a song on there called uh, contusion, which is a jazz fusion workout. That sounds like it could have been recorded by earth, wind and fire. And then you have uh, a song like uh, Sir Duke, which is a massive pop hit. You listen to Wadi Watchell's baseline on that. That's straight up Verdeen White. You know, he must have heard Getaway. He must have heard these other songs, right? So I think that they influenced each other. Uh, but the other thing about Earth, Wind & Fire that these other artists, maybe Stevie Wonder, you could argue, uh, is very, you know, as, as sophisticated as Earth, Wind & Fire. He's got a lot of jazz in his music and his melodic senses. So he is a genius, you know, just straight up. But these other bands like Sly and the Family Stone, Marvin Gaye, they don't have nearly the musical sophistication of a band like Earth, Wind & Fire. I mean, one of my favorite bands is Yes, and they don't sing about anything political. They, As a matter of fact, their lyrics are fucking complete nonsense. Yeah. You know, they don't make any sense. It's more about the sound of the, mute and the words going with the melody, yet they're creating this incredible, sophisticated, technical music. I would argue Earth, Wind & Fire is the funk version of that. You know, they're like almost like a prog band, some of the stuff. And I'm going to play an example of that. Uh, one of their songs that I think is as sophisticated as something Yes or King Crimson would do, uh, you know, or maybe Miles Davis, you know, they, and, but it's in a pop in the context of a pop song and melding that sophistication together with pop, I think is unique to them. And they do it at a level that just no one else maybe can do. Maybe Steely Dan, you know, might yeah. be the exception to the rule. And, you know, comparing them with Steely Dan, for me, one of my all time, another of my all time favorite bands is a huge compliment. So and I would probably argue, my all time favorite band is. You right. Know, right. Yeah. I mean, as far as if I if I rank it by how often I listen to the band, they're probably mine, you know. So so I that's sort of the possible criticisms you could level against Earth on a Fire. And I just wanted to debunk those, you know, so I'm definitely kind of revealing my cards right now. 
I'm long and I want to kind of, but I kind of wanted to say, okay, here's some possible criticisms, but I wanted to debunk those songs. So let's get more into why they're great uh, as opposed to possible criticisms. Obviously you mentioned September. This song has had lasting impact. And again, as I mentioned toward the beginning of the show, I think there's something to be said for something that's universally appealing, right? The Beatles are one of these bands that's both critically acclaimed and popularly acclaimed. And I've always been mystified by the magic of them being able to do sophisticated music and also appeal to the masses, right? Or there's someone like Michael Jackson where his music might not be as sophisticated, but there's something to be said for this music that the whole world loves. Like, what is it about the melodies? What is it about the music that has that appeal? To me, that can't be, you know, as a as a young person, I was always thinking stuff that's popular can't be good, right? I always dismissed stuff that was popular and the mass, the taste of the masses. But now I look upon it as what did they tap into mm. that the whole world loves? There's something primal, like we're just these apes, you know, and it's like, what, what, what captures the ape mind, the human mind? about this music that everyone in the world loves it. And Earth, Wind & Fire is like that. And September in particular has that appeal, right? Because September, as I mentioned, was their biggest selling single over the years. And it's also their most downloaded on Spotify with over 1 billion views, making it one of the most popular songs of all time. Of course, when Ed Sheeran has, you know, 30 billion views, maybe that's not that much of a compliment, you know? Yeah. So, you know, this 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 thing with popular versus non-popular, there obviously is trends and things. And, you know, maybe someday I'll respect why people like Ed Sheeran, but I can't hear it. You know, uh, throw through in fire, I can. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't uh, count on that happening with me in the future. One day, maybe for you, but never for me. Fuck Ed Sheeran. So their significance, uh, again, is... They were they were crossover in more ways than one, as we've mentioned, and they were the first black arena rock band. And there's something to be said for that. They paved the way for the arena rock bands of the futures, even for the ones today and uh, that were African-American. They broke that barrier. And I think that's really critical. Of course, they didn't do it alone. Stevie Wonder was a huge act as well during the time. Uh, But they as a band, they they really did that, you know. Uh, Now, the other thing is it's debatable, but I think they were a really early progenitor of this kind of genre that has been, it's kind of a pseudo musical genre called Yacht Rock. And I wanted to play a clip of what I think might be the first Yacht Rock song, which is That's the Way of the World. And I'm going to talk about this, a, a few more things about why this song is so magical to me, but let's play that clip. Okay, so that's smooth, it's jazzy, it's got that those elements of yacht rock, but in 1975, which is before most of what 
you know, the official Yacht Rock stuff started, you know, maybe a few years later. But I think more importantly, when I was a kid, I listened to this and I just thought it was catchy and I liked it, but I never appreciated the sophistication and the complexity of what's going on there. I mean, listen to all those vocal parts. It's like they're just improvising. You know, there's different vocal parts just jumping in, like, you know, yet it never loses its melody and its catchiness. I mean, I can't think of anything more sophisticated vocally than what that part of that song. It's just so many different parts, like, and 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 they're just throwing layer upon layer. And at the same time, there's musical sophistication. You know, the bass again is that Verdeen complexity, and then you have the orchestration going on at the same time. I mean, it's just a freaking masterpiece to me. You know, it's just incredible. Um, and of course, you know, another thing that we talked about that Jeff talked about a lot was the live show. And we talked about, you know, this levitating trick that they did with Verdeen that looks incredible, really. I mean, the footage is not is kind of grainy. You know, you don't get the high quality HD footage of that stuff. I would love to have that restored, like to have a, a Blu-ray of Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, maybe in 77 or 78 at their prime, uh, a full show. But awesome. as I mentioned, they did this magic trick and what the, and the magic trick you could see, and we'll put it in the show notes because there's a documentary called Shining Star. I think it was made around early 2000s and and it has footage of this trick. And what this trick was is Earth, Lord and Fire, you know, they had tons of people on stage. Right. And they had a few of the band members dressed as these aliens. They look kind of like astronauts, but it's kind of a you know very glam 70s disco astronaut. And their faces are their heads are completely covered by helmets. You can't see who they are. Right. But then you see all the main members, you know, the principal leaders of the band. You know, you see Philip Bailey, Maurice Fight, and, and, you know, a, a few of the other guys in front. Uh, and uh, while this is going on with all these people grouped together on stage, a kind of pyramid descends to the uh, to a higher level of the stage that's uh, you know at the top of these stairs, and then you see the principal members of the band. You know, you see Verdeen, you see Maurice White, you see um, Philip Bailey, all go into the pyramid, and then the pyramid rises up. And meanwhile, these astronauts are on the stage. You know, <laughs> and they're all there, and the pyramid rises up, and then and then it disappears, and then you see. The astronauts, a couple of the astronauts pull up their helmets and it's Maurice, Philip Bailey and Verdine, the guys who supposedly went to the pyramid. And it's pretty amazing. Like it's as good of a trick as you would see like a real magician do because a real magician did come up with it. Um, you know, and they had some spinal tap moments getting this together. It's kind of funny. They um, one of the times the pyramid came crashing down and they had, to, you know, not during the live stage, but during rehearsals. And, yeah. you know, they had to get that all together. It was pretty crazy. But uh, to me, that's I love that extra effort, putting that into your stage show, spending all this money just because you want to deliver the best show possible. That's right. You know, yeah. they could have just gone on stage and played and it would have been great because of their musicianship and, and early their on arrangements. They did that, yeah. But they kept notch ratcheting it up notches. Right. Yeah. Speaking of musicianship, I want to play a little bit of their of, of gratitude that I talked about so much, the kind of more jazz fusion. This is an Africano pop power medley. It's a it's basically two songs put together from their early albums, Africano from That's the Way of the World, and a song called Power uh from uh I believe The Need of Love, although I may correct that in the show notes because I don't remember. But let's go ahead and play that.
Okay, we should mention that 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 features the great uh, Andrew Woolfolk, who, as of this recording, just passed away on soprano sax. And that just shows you, I mean, this is like a jazz fusion track, you know, it kind of shows you what, the, what they could do. Also, um, I should mention Power was actually from uh, uh, their third album, uh, and I had gotten that wrong. So that was from the, um, shoot, uh, Last Days in Time album. So I should mention that, correct that. Um, so yeah, that shows what they could do as instrumentalists, right? Not, they didn't just do pop music, but they did this more experimental stuff. Um, so the other thing I want to bring up, of course, is another one of my favorite songs, uh, what I consider to be, and what Paul McCartney considers to be the greatest Beatles cover ever recorded, which was Got to Get You Into My Life. And the amazing thing about this is they got, they were kind of given late notice uh, you know, uh, of and they were given late picks of the song, so they did. They want they probably would have chosen another song, uh, you know, uh, by the Beatles. They, you know, "Got to Get You in My Life" isn't the most high profile song, but all the other bands had taken kind of the more high profile hits. I mean, shit, I would love to listen to a whole cover of Earth, Wind, and Fire versions of the Beatles. I would even, you know, they could probably do something with even fucking shit like Octopus's Garden or something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, but they they took only 48 hours to arrange this whole thing. And when you hear it, you know, you should go, I'm not going to play the original, but you should go back and listen to the original and listen to this in comparison and how much more sophisticated and how much more, you know, God's Kitchen in My Life is an energetic, positive song by the Beatles. But listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire do it. They even kick the joy up, you know, times 10. So let's listen to a little bit of that. So you can hear how joyful that is, but also how sophisticated it is. And it's crazy. They put that together in two days. I mean, that's just unbelievable and shows their talent, right? Yeah. Um, okay. The next song I want to play is another favorite. Uh, and it's an unusual song in the catalog. You know, it's it's basically shows that um, Earth, Wind & Fire had a lot of musical influences. And this song, Fantasy, was originally written by uh, Maurice White, who uh, collaborated with a, uh, uh, a guy named Eddie Del Barrio. And Eddie Del Barrio had worked with Larry Dunn in a side project that was also part of the Kalimba Productions. with the, key, the keyboardist, right? Right, the yeah. keyboardist Larry Dunn. Yeah. Yeah. And he had worked, he had worked with him in, in this uh, band called Caldera. And you can find their stuff on Spotify. It's pretty cool. It's like basically instrumental Earth, Wind & Fire. It's kind of like that Africano power medley I played. And it's, it's a pretty cool album, actually. I like a lot of jazz fusion, so it was good. So they wrote this together and 
it has a, a distinct Latin influence, but it's also got so many more things going on. You know, Larry Dunn and Verdine came up with this intro to the song that's kind of goes from a Baroque, almost kind of something like Rick Wakeman would play to a more sophisticated Latin melody, but with these bass runs and weird keyboard sound effects that are just unreal. This is, I'm talking about the song called Fantasy. And the intro to this song alone is just a musical tour de force. And so we're going to listen to that now. the idea i mean that intro it sounds like progressive rock to me yeah, it's so complex you've got this complex orchestration you've got these incredible horns you've got that kind of weird rumbling bass and keyboard thing these incredible keyboard runs and like you know it's just a, a and, and then the whole rhythm of it is just odd you know it's it's kind of latin but you can't even really describe it it's kind of its own thing and it just blows my mind when I listen to it with the kind of new ears I brought after, you know, deciding we decided to do the show. Yeah. Uh, now, the last clip I want to talk about is one of my favorite songs again, but it's in particular for the ending of the song. Now, I've often thought, you know, a cool podcast idea, you know, we do this podcast, but I thought maybe another cool idea would just be to cool talk about the cool parts of songs yeah. that we love. And often those songs are the endings. Like so, some things I think about that are my favorites where it's like a it's like a part of a song where you just want it to go on forever. I mentioned this in the beginning of California Girls. That's one of those things. Right. The beginning of fantasy is another probably another example of that. The end of vital signs of rush for me is that way. Oh, yeah. Where you just want it to go yeah. on forever. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think like Drop Dead Legs, that last guitar yeah. riff that Eddie Van Halen plays. Yeah. No, I could listen to that for hours. This is great. Right? And then it, I think it's one of his greatest guitar solos. Oh, yeah. It just guy. it's and the way the drums accompany it yeah. is amazing. Another one is uh, I love Supertramp and the album Breakfast in America. They have a song called Goodbye Stranger. It has this incredible coda to it. Obviously, the other ones like Layla is another example where that's an explicit coda. Although I probably heard that too much for my own good, you know, to be sick of it. But those are examples, right? This is another one. So there's a song, Can't Hide Love. It was not, you know, it to me, it should have been a much bigger hit than it was. It wasn't actually that big of a song, uh, but because it's so catchy and it's become a beloved song and it's on their greatest hits as well. But the ending, like a minute and a half of the, the song's about four minutes long and about a minute and a half is this vocal coda that just keeps going on. And it's it just sends chills down my spine every time I hear it. And so we're going to play it for you now. This great part of a, a part of a part of a song. Oh, 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 oh,
not as sophisticated as some of their stuff, but the harmonies are just incredible on that. And I could just listen to that all day. I love it. Um, you know, and I think, you know, as I mentioned, as it's some of the possible criticisms of Earth, Wind & Fire, I think their influence has been largely overlooked. Uh, you know, they do have a really important part in, in music history. For one thing, Maurice White, as an entrepreneur, as a band leader, was just groundbreaking. You know, as I mentioned before, he formed a record company, he formed a production company, he shepherded other artists in. You know, he brought in David Foster, who would become this incredible incredibly important producer in the 80s who, you know, was re responsible for Chicago's comeback, which I think is kind of a dubious distinction in a way, because I think the best Chicago stuff is in the 70s. Yeah, but, um, you know, obviously he was a popular, you know, he was popular and he learned he he actually did the introduction to Maurice White's auto, uh, autobiography. And he talked about how Maurice White was one of the most important people in his life and who brought him in. And, you know, when people talk about Maurice White, they just talk about him as, you know, even though he he was uh, a d very demanding leader of the band, they talk about what a great guy he was and how he helped so many people get their careers off the ground. And I think that's really important. Um, I think he was a major influence on the sound, the African-American, especially the sound of the 80s. I think you can't deny that the crossover of Earth, Wind & Fire was directly responsible for Michael Jackson's work with Quincy Jones. I mean, you can hear it in Off the Wall and Thriller. You can hear some of the melodic ideas of Earth, Wind & Fire coming through strong. And of course, you played Reasons, right? And Prince, he's got Doomy Baby. He's got Adore. He's got these ballads. You know, Little Red Corvette, you know, yeah. that is straight up Philip Bailey. And Prince has admitted, you know, he's a huge fan of the album I Am. He's a huge fan of Earth, Wind & Fire. I know as a young person, he was listening to Philip Bailey and his falsetto is directly influenced by Philip Bailey. But also the crossover thing, right? I mean, these two artists were the biggest crossover artists of, of the 80s for African-Americans. And I think they were directly influenced. Almost all by, time, too. Right, maybe. almost all time, really. Yeah. yeah, right. Especially Michael Jackson, yeah. uh, but also Prince. And I think, um, you know, as I mentioned, 80s pop in general, you know, he influenced David Foster, who, who was, you know, a key, uh, you know, as far as adult contemporary pop of the 80s was a key figure, um, you know, and then, of course, Phil Collins. Phil Collins actually brought in the Phoenix horns to get some of that earth, wind and fire magic. You know, he not only collaborated with Philip Bailey, but you know, no jacket required is every song or no reply at all. Some of these Genesis hits of the eighties, they are uh, the, the uh, Phoenix horns uh, are a key ingredient in that. And Phil Collins was directly influenced by earth, wind and fire. Right. So yeah. I think their influence is profound and I think because of that influence, because of that song craft, because of the incredible stage performances and undeniable uh, talent and musicianship, I am definitely long on Earth, Wind & Fire. You know, it's been just a, a joy, as you put it. Joy is the perfect word. It's been a joy to revisit this stuff. And I think uh, hearing it with new ears and listening to the detail of the music, you know, as you point out, Verdine's bass playing and all the musicianship is just incredibly sophisticated and uh groundbreaking for its time and i just don't think there's anything quite like them and they th i think that's why it was a no-brainer that they got in the rock and roll hall of fame i think it was an easy choice just because of that the magnitude of their uh impact so that's where i'll leave it yeah no i agree definitely uh earth wind and fire we're both long and you should go listen to some earth wind and fire right now if you haven't yeah. for a while so 
thank you, everybody. Uh, let us know what you think in the comments on the various places you listen to this podcast. Our email is also in the show notes, so check that out. This has been episode 15, Earth, Wind, and Fire. We'll catch you next time for a very another special episode. It'll be a movie next time. We know what we're yeah. doing, but we're not going to. We're not right. going to tip our hats here on, uh, on that. So uh, catch you next time for CFX. This is Jeff and Slip signing off. All right.